Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome back to the Know It All podcast. I'm your host, Riley Sue, and I'm so excited to be joining y'all for another episode of the pod. Last week, we covered two stolen items that were part of the controversies surrounding the coronation of King Charles III. And I do have thoughts over the coronation, mostly that I didn't really like Camilla's dress. And I don't want to sound hypercritical of Queen Camilla. Um, I don't want to sound hypercritical of her. It's just that it resembled something out of Star Wars to me. And that was only further exemplified by the fact that the shoulder straps looked like a backpack or like a jetpack of some kind. I did appreciate, though, that it had her dogs and her grandchildren's names embroidered onto it. The dogs were super cute. I thought that was a really nice touch. Charles all day long looked like he was on the verge of either breaking out into full out tears or having a nervous breakdown. And Harry looked fine, fine, fine. But none of that is really astray from the norm. So we're going to keep things moving right along. Better not to dwell on the Mountbatten Windsors too long anyway. I am still a little touch and go on my voice. So if I sound at all raspy or we have some strange cracklings here and there, please forgive me. I've also been trying out a new recording setup that allows for my dog to come in and out of the space that I record in. She is very attached to me and it's just kind of how we have to do things right now. So if you hear any scrapings or rumblings in the back, it's probably her just jumping up onto the couch. Basically, I'm saying that I make no promises that episodes will be perfect. I mean, hell, when are things ever perfect here? You know what, though? You know what is perfect? Oh, this is a good segue. Y'all even y'all don't know what's coming. You know what is perfect? Mayonnaise. <laughs> yeah, mayonnaise. Mayonnaise. And I'm not joking. Mayonnaise is the most perfect condiment. I don't care if you disagree because it's true. And again, I'm the one sitting here with the microphone, which makes me automatically more right and more qualified than you. So mayonnaise is the best. Our topic of discussion this week is going to be condiments, the sweet and savory accoutrements that we all know and love to add to our favorite foods. And whether they're serving as an ingredient in sauces or recipes, shining bright alone on a french fry, or being used as a moisturizer, the variety of uses for condiments is almost as varied as their history. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into it. Now, what is a condiment? What do I mean when I say that word? Well, the definition of a condiment is this, quote, a substance such as salt or ketchup that is used to add flavor to a food, end quote. And I'm going to go ahead and call out that that definition is straight up nonsense. Bullshit, even. Salt, a condiment, like, that's not even a seasoning, in my opinion. It's not even a seasoning, in my opinion. What white person at Merriam-Webster wrote this horrifying definition? I just want to talk. Like, whitey to whitey. I just want to talk. In an article from Testing Table, I found this definition from Chef Matt Highland. Quote, a condiment needs to be thinner than a guacamole, but no thicker than ranch. If it's too thick, it becomes a dip, end quote. And that's a little closer to what I think I'm looking for when I think condiments. And I think that we can all most certainly agree that a condiment is a substance that adds flavor to food, something that we put on in addition to our tasty tidbit so that we can make it that much more delicious. And honestly, after trying to find a definition or sentence that sums it up perfectly, I think that condiments fit that saying that people use about porn. It's hard to say what it is in precise terms, but we all know a condiment when we see it. The condiment industry was valued at $32.2 billion in North America in 2021. And in 2022, the leader in the North American industry, Kraft Heinz, brought in around $26.5 billion in profit. 
And it may shock you to learn that for years, the highest selling and most popular condiment in the United States has been mayonnaise. The thick, eggy, and often divisive spread that's been capturing our hearts and arteries for hundreds of years. We all have a favorite condiment, and we all know someone who thinks that everything needs to be accompanied with a sauce. But do we truly know the histories and origins of our favorites? And if we learn their beginnings, is it easier to understand who is superior in the end? There are, of course, hundreds to thousands of types of condiments around the world. So for the sake of time and my sanity, I will be doing four condiments that are the most popular in the United States. I want to go ahead and throw out that I excluded barbecue sauce from this list because I think that I could probably do a whole episode in general over not just the sauce, but barbecue as a culture. So look out for that one probably later in the summer. I also, when researching for this episode, talked to some family members and some friends, and many of them thought that cheese would somehow be included as a condiment on the list. I'm going to go ahead and tell you guys that cheese is not a condiment for one, not in this household, and two, it's not going to be on the list today. So I think those are all my caveats and qualifications. Oh, also, if you're listening on Spotify, don't forget to vote in the episode poll to let me know which of the condiments that we discuss is your favorite. It's right there underneath of the episode description whenever you click on the episode, so just scroll down until you find it. All right, let's go. Now, leading us off is going to be mustard because it's the most simple in terms of ingredients and creation. It's also the oldest that we're going to cover today, and it's probably hands down my favorite, even beating out mayonnaise, which is a tough ask. Like if I had to have a deserted island condiment, it would be mustard, which now that I'm thinking about a little harder doesn't really make a lot of sense because what am I going to put mustard on? You know, actually, I'll just eat it. I'll just eat it straight up. Never mind. Never mind. Made from the ground seeds of a mustard plant combined with a liquid and a few spices, mustard as a condiment can be extremely diverse, ranging from sweet to spicy, ground smooth to seeded, and accompanying almost anything that you could imagine. The main types of mustard plants and seeds used in the creation of bottled and jarred sauces are white and yellow seeds of Mediterranean origin or brown seeds of Himalayan origin. The purposeful cultivation of these seeds for use in food has been recorded in Indian and Sumerian texts dating back to 3,000 years before the Common Era. In Africa and China, mustard has also been popular for thousands of years. Mustard greens have long been popular in China, and it was there during the Zhao Dynasty from 1046 to 256 BCE that yellow mustard paste originated. There it was used in royal courts to stimulate the appetite for later courses in a meal, so not really used as a condiment, more like a thick soup or something. They weren't adding it to anything, they were just eating it. See, deserted island food. The Romans were likely the first to use mustard as a condiment at the table, and their preparation went a little something like this. Mix unfermented grape juice with ground mustard seeds to make a paste. There you go. Later Roman versions would add spices and other items that became available with the expansion of trading and connection of the Silk Road through Asia. Those later recipes add things like pepper, coriander, dill, celery, onion, honey, vinegar, fish sauce, and much more. The Romans took mustard seeds and the recipe for their version of the condiment with them to Gaul and planted the seeds in vineyards. There was a decrease in trading and therefore a decrease in available spices after the fall of Rome and at the beginning of the Middle Ages. And so for some time, the main spice used in Europe was mustard. Parts of Gaul became France, and by the end of the 13th century, the country saw the first appearance of mustard makers on the Royal Register in Paris. Also at this time, the town of Dijon, France, became a recognized center in the production of mustard, but it wasn't the Dijon mustard variety that you're familiar with. It was more like the Roman original. But still, mustard was the tits in Dijon, with regulations on its production and heavy fines for poorly made batches beginning in the 14th century. 
This area of France's love for mustard is further evidenced in history by a 1336 incident where guests consumed a whopping 320 liters of mustard in a single sitting at a gala held by the Duke of Burgundy. At about the same time Dijon was legislating their mustard production, King Richard II was King of England and he also had an affinity for mustard. His master chefs wrote a book called The Form of Curie in 1390, and they tell of their preferred method for making mustard to be used as a condiment. The recipe reads, quote, Take mustard seed and wash it dry in an oven. Grind it dry. Clarify honey with wine vinegar. Stir it well together and make it thick. End quote. Mustard balls that could be stored dry and then combined with wine or vinegar were very popular at this time, containing flour and cinnamon as well as the ground mustard seeds. The English village of Tewkesbury was well known for their high-quality mustard balls that included the addition of horseradish. The balls were sent to London to be sold and were so popular they were even mentioned in Shakespeare's King Henry IV, Part Two. It's in Act Scene 2, Scene 4, where Dahl says, quote, They said Poins has good wits, end quote, and Falstaff replies, quote, He a good wit? Hang him, baboon. His wits as thick as Tewkesbury mustard, end quote. I bet that joke just absolutely killed back in the day. Thick as mustard? Are you kidding? The folks in 1597 were rolling. It's probably obvious to you by now that mustard sort of had a heyday in the Middle Ages. I mean, it didn't have much to compete with, but it was definitely loved by the masses. 14th century Pope John XXII was so into the spicy sauce that he created a papal post of Grand Mutadir du Pape, or Mustard Maker to the Pope. In 1692, a book was published that recommended mustard with some good vinegar added to it to warm and quicken dull spirits. But that same author by 1668 wrote this, quote, our ancient forefathers were not sparing in the use thereof, but nowadays it is seldom used by their successors, being accounted the clown's sauce and therefore not fit for their tables, end quote. So in just under 40 years, mustard had gone from a remedy for your Sunday scaries to a sauce that only a fool would dare eat. This could have been the end for mustard and the doom of hot dogs everywhere. But by 1699, the tune had changed again, and it was written that mustard could clarify your blood, treat a weak stomach, and aid with pains in the sides or loins. Things lulled there for a while until in 1856, Jean Nagion of Dijon, France, substituted verjuice for the usual vinegar in the preparation of his mustard. Verjuice is described as vinegar without the acid, or white wine without the complexity, and as far as I can tell, it's made from unripened grapes, so sort of like how it was done by the Romans, but different. This addition of verjuice is what created the distinctive Dijon mustard taste that is so well known and loved now. Unlike other distinct-to-location items from the European Union like gorgonzola or champagne, the name Dijon is not eligible for nor does it carry protected designation of origin status. And this is due to the fact that the European Union sees Dijon as a genericized term that has spread far throughout Europe and the world just to mean mustard rather than to specify a certain type of mustard from a certain place. Poor Dijon. Now, the origins of hot dogs as we eat them in the United States is hotly debated. Pun intended. But sausages originate from Frankfurt, Germany, or Vienna, Austria. Again, this is heavily debated, and I couldn't find a clear answer. You want to call them Frankenfurters? Frankfurt, Germany. You want to call them Wieners? Vienna, Austria. But with both sausages and mustard as we know it originating in Western Europe, I'm going to make the historical leap that the two were paired long, long before the North American continent was ever even touched by Europeans. But, but... When you visit the French's website today, it will tell you that hot dogs with mustard poured over them was an idea all their own at the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis, Missouri. 
Dig just a little deeper on that fact, though, and you can find that a publicist from French's in 2004 admitted that she had inferred the fact because there were both hot dogs and mustard at the event. But the mustard in question was being peddled by French's as a salad dressing, not as a sauce for hot dogs. Made with more vinegar and turmeric for color, French's was bursting onto the scene with what would eventually be called American yellow mustard or ballpark mustard due to its ties with hot dogs and baseball. And even the tie of hot dogs and baseball predates the World's Fair in St. Louis. With German immigrant Chris von der Rey purchasing the St. Louis Browns, now the Baltimore Orioles, in 1867, 37 years before the fair, and peddling what he called Frankenfurters to fans at the game. If we've got mustard here in the United States, we've also got to have ketchup. But the ketchup you're imagining looks very different from how ketchup began. Before we get into the details of ketchup, I have a bit of a personal disclosure, and that's that I hate ketchup. I think it's vile and stinky and sticky and doesn't taste good and makes everything that it touches taste like, well, ketchup, which I already established is disgusting. Now, I'm not sure if I hate ketchup because I actually hate it or if it's because it's a learned behavior from my mom. You see, my mom hates ketchup and our hatred for it is pretty level. But after thinking it over, I realized I may actually never eat ketchup as a punishment for something that I did to her many, many years ago. I was somewhere between the ages of four and five, and my mom, my dad, my papa, my infant sister, and I were all out for lunch at a bar and a grill in our small town. You know the type, basically your local bar, but throw in a booth in the corner and a high chair gathering dust in the hallway outside of the bathroom. Now it's a family establishment. We were in our booth waiting to have our order taken when my mom dismissed herself from the table to go to the bathroom with my sister. I stayed at the table with my dad and his dad. Now, if you don't know my dad, he's a bit of a menace. My mom always says that he's a perpetual 12-year-old inside of a 50-plus-year-old body. They're that classic mom and dad pairing. He's a bit of a joking troublemaker, and she's a scheduled worrier. Together, they made this hot mess express, the yin and yangs of my personality. So my mom goes off to the bathroom, and my dad sees an opportunity. He leans over to me and he says, Rye, when your mom gets back and sits down next to you, grab the bottle of ketchup and squirt some onto her. He was already laughing when he told me this, and so I was already convinced it was the best idea in the entire world. Now, another bit of an aside about my dad is that many of the phrases that he said to me growing up are even too colorful for this audio program. Basically, what you need to know is that he's a hard ass. There are home videos of me at around 18 months old lifting full gallons of sweet tea so he'd just hand me back my pacifier, and this was a game that was common between the two of us. He'd nab one of my toys, and I'd have to do some kind of physical feat to get it back. But I guess on this day, he had forgotten about all of this baby gladiator training that I was doing, because he swears that he had no idea I was about to do what I was about to do. My mom comes back out of the bathroom and secures my sister into the dusty high chair. I make a side eye contact with my dad. He smirks. I know what's up. He knows what's up. Mom has no idea. She sits down in her seat right next to me and begins to ask everyone else what they're thinking for food. And right as she does, I reach my grubby little arm right across the table, grab the red plastic squeeze bottle. My hands wrap around the cold tube. I tilt the tip back at my mom. I squeeze with all my might. And all that grip strength I've gained from pushing gallons of tea and milk crates sends red streamers of ketchup flying through the air. And they land with a quiet but impactful sploosh all over my mom's chest, neck, and torso. I have effectively covered the woman in the substance that is most vile to her. God. 
From that moment forward, my memory gets a little blurred, and I just barely remember my mom instantly knowing that it had been my dad's idea, then starting to gag, and then running back to the bathroom in an attempt to clean herself up. What I do remember, and what I still feel, though, is sorry for my actions and bad for my mom, a feeling that I think I can trace all the way up through my own aversion and hatred towards ketchup. On that day, I swore it off, taking up a ketchupless lifestyle as my cross to bear for the wrongdoings towards my mother. Both the word ketchup and the sauce itself could be traced to originating in Asia, as a fermented fish sauce with no tomatoes involved called ketsup. It was then a thick dark brown paste made from fermenting anchovies, and when it reached British traders in the 16th century, it was used more as an ingredient in cooking rather than a topping or condiment. The European and British traders loved it and brought it back with them to their home countries where it became popular. Of course, people didn't want to wait for their Keatsup dealers to re-up every six months from Asia, so recipes and varieties made from ingredients that are more traditional to English cooking became popular. Enter mushroom ketchup. A 1736 cookbook titled The Country Housewife and Ladies Director in the Management of a House and the Delights and Profits of a Farm gives a recipe for mushroom ketchup to be made in September, in which the ingredient list calls for some large mushrooms, about a dram of mace, a pint of strong red port wine, boiled all together, and then put through a sieve to be bottled. The author notes that when done correctly and bottled in the right quantity, the ketchup can last without molding or turning for more than a year. The author also goes on to state that even the littlest bit of this ketchup is very strong when used in cooking other sauces, which indicates that still at this point, ketchup was not a condiment so much as an ingredient, like how one may use Worcestershire sauce or oyster sauce now. By the 1740s, ketchup was an everyday part of English meals, but the term referred to almost any spiced sauce on a table. Mushroom ketchup was the most common of these sauces for a long time, but others like walnut, elderberry, beer, celery, or oyster were also common, with all these types trying to imitate the umami flavor of the original fish variety. It wasn't until 1812 that the first published recipe for tomato ketchup appeared, written by Philadelphia horticulturist James Meese, who called tomatoes love apples. His recipe included the pulp of tomatoes, brandy, and spices, but was missing sugar or vinegar like the modern variety. Tomato-based ketchup slowly gained popularity in the United States, and in 1824, the Virginia Housewife by Mary Randolph contained her recipe for tomato ketchup, which included blistering the tomatoes in a fire on their own before adding onions, mace, salt, and pepper. Then she suggests bringing everything to a boil and boiling it down until it fills two bottles. And though Mary doesn't provide very detailed information on the size of those bottles, she does have an opinion on when you should make your ketchup, and she suggests August. As Mary's recipe shows, making tomato ketchup at home was a lot of work, but it was usually worth it because the bottled sauce could usually last for up to a year. So when in the 1830s commercially bottled ketchup became available, home cooks gladly bought it, at first. Commercial packaging and production of tomato ketchup turned out to be harder than originally expected. Tomatoes have a small growing season, meaning that the makers of ketchup needed to preserve the tomato pulp year-round. Some producers stored their pulp in ways that promoted the growth of bacteria, spores, yeast, and mold. And even the tomato itself was coming off of a long rain as being thought of as poisonous by many Europeans and North Americans. So tomatoes in general and their ketchup had a reputation as a dangerous food. And in 1866, French cookbook author Pierre Blot called commercial ketchup, quote, filthy, decomposed, and putrid, end quote. And I agree, Pierre. Investigations into the early commercial ketchups that were in production found that they were contaminated with potentially unsafe levels of preservatives, particularly coal tar, which was added to achieve a redder color, as well as sodium benzoate, which was added as a preservative. 
By the end of the 19th century, benzoates were seen as harmful to one's health, and Dr. Harvey Washington Wiley was leading the crusade against them. Dr. Wiley partnered with a Pittsburgh man who had been making tomato ketchup since 1876, Henry J. Hines. Yes, that Hines. And we still know his name now because he was about to help revolutionize the ketchup that was gracing the American table. By 1904, the Heinz Company also believed that Americans didn't want a ketchup filled with preservatives. And so in response to this, they created a ketchup recipe that used ripe red tomatoes as well as a much higher concentration of vinegar. And therefore, they were able to greatly reduce the risk of spoilage. Heinz began marketing their preservative-free ketchup and dominated the market, selling 5 million bottles by 1905. And when you spell ketchup with a K-E-T-C-H rather than a C-A-T, you also have Heinz to think. He used the K spelling to stand out against competitors who preferred the catsup style. Also iconic to ketchup and to Heinz is their glass bottle, which was first patented in 1882. The purpose of this bottle is to, of course, protect and preserve the ketchup, but also to enable it to be extracted quickly and easily. But anyone who's ever used the glass Heinz bottle knows that that last bit is a lie. That's because Heinz ketchup can actually be described as a pseudoplastic substance, meaning it thickens when static and thins when moved. You flip the bottle upside down and it clogs up the neck, becoming too thick to pour. You could, of course, thin it again by shaking the bottle or giving it a solid smack, but then you risk making the ketchup so runny it gushes out into a giant blob on your burger, hot dog, or God forbid steak. This can, of course, be remedied with the use of a squeeze bottle or the upside-down plastic bottle style that's popular now, but the user experience just isn't the same. There's no character growth if your uncle never rudely says to you, hit it on the side with the number, that's why they put it there. Like, okay, Brian, I'm seven, but I guess this flex is essential to your masculinity. My point is that just like the shape of a Coke bottle or the smell of a firework, Heinz ketchup is iconically American. A survey in 2014 found that 97% of households in the United States reported having it in their houses. In 1969, President Nixon said that his favorite breakfast was cottage cheese and ketchup. And it even makes an appearance in the very first episode of Hannah Montana when Miley sees Corbin Blue and rubs it all over her hands. You know what a lot of people don't know is, is it's also a wonderful moisturizer. Here. Isn't that lovely? Moisturizer. <laughs> You're pretty funny. Oh, my hand does feel softer. But even with ketchup being integral to the beginnings of Heinz and Miley Cyrus's career, it's not the number one selling condiment in America. Like I said earlier, that would be mayonnaise. I let off the ketchup section by telling you how much I hate it. Now let me flip things around and tell you how much I love mayonnaise. Yeah, go ahead. Gag it out. Consider switching to another podcast. I'm so vile. Stop that. Take your finger away from the screen. Don't actually do it. Jesus. I'm serious, though. I love mayo. When I worked at the local burger shack in high school, I seriously used to slurp it out of the packet right there behind the register if I got hungry between breaks. I used to spread it on toast when I was a kid. And for years, I never ate lettuce or tomatoes on my BLT, so my grandma called it a BMT. Bacon, mayo, toast. Now, I think that I could probably have a diplomatic level debate on whether or not I am more disgusting for my mayo love or if the general population's love of ketchup is worse. But the even more shocking debate when it comes to mayonnaise is which country can claim its origins. 
Almost all of the origin stories, though, point to Mayon on the island of Menorca off the Mediterranean coast of Spain. The period we're most focused on is the 18th century, and at this time, control of Menorca was transitioned from the English to the French, back to the English, and then finally to the Spanish at the turn of the century. The French version of the origin story says that it happened in 1756, after French forces under the command of Duc de Richelieu had gained control of the island and the city of Mayon. The Duke's chef needed to make a sauce for the victory dinner, and most sauces at this time were cream and egg-based, but there was no cream on the island. Now, this is where details start to get a little fuzzy. But either the chef himself decided to substitute olive oil for cream, or he asked locals to help him come up with a sauce, and they suggested to use the olive oil and egg to make a sauce. But either way, a sauce was made, and it was called mayonnaise, after the city where it had been created, Mayon. It could be stated, though, that the creation of this egg and oil sauce was just a natural progression of French cuisine, with enriched vinaigrettes and roumalades appearing throughout the 18th century, though none of them combined oil and egg. The Spanish origins follow the creation of mayo to aioli, which, if you don't know, is a garlic and olive oil emulsion that has ancient origins from all around the Mediterranean, eastern Spain, southern France, southern Italy, and Malta. Basically, the Spanish thought process goes that instead of emulsifying olive oil and garlic alone, somebody added in an egg. And I kind of buy into this, with a 1750 recipe for a sauce similar to mayonnaise called aioli bow from Valencia, Spain, saying that everyone on the island knew how to make the sauce. With aioli all over Spain for years before the duke and his chef showed up, and the fact that mayonnaise doesn't show up in any French cooking resources before the siege of Mayon, I'm left with no choice but to be Team Spain here. So I'm going to go ahead and say that the Spanish invented mayonnaise, but the French popularized it. By the beginning of the 19th century, the word mayonnaise began to appear in German and British cookbooks dedicated to the art of French cuisine, though some French critics thought that Port Mayon wasn't exactly the image of haute cuisine, so it should be called Bayonnaise, after the more posh French town Bayonne, known for its hams. In the 1920s, Spain would lead its own campaign in an attempt to make the world call it Salsa Mayonesa. We can all deduce how both those crusades worked out. But mayonnaise was spread throughout Europe as a French creation, and as French chefs and restaurants spread to the United States, so did mayo. It was at Delmonico's in Manhattan in 1838 that mayonnaise was first offered to the American public in the forms of mayonnaise of lobster and a chicken mayonnaise. And this is the beginning of mayo coming into its most iconic form, as a salad dressing. Mayonnaise salads are, in my Midwestern opinion, just as American as apple pie and they find their origins in the last years of the 19th century. Potato salads, tomato salads, the Waldorf salad, and many, many more came into popularity. I found an 1897 cookbook that has an entire chapter over mayonnaise-based salads, including chicken salad, cream of chicken salad, cream of tongue salad, sweetbread salad, which is pancreas, I didn't know that either, canned salmon salad, shad roe salad, which we would probably call caviar salad, sour orange salad, white grape salad, duck salad, and sardine salad. God, my stomach just hurts thinking about it. But where mayo really found its groove for salads was at the deli counter of the early 20th century stores on the East Coast. The first commercially available jarred mayonnaise came in 1907 when Philadelphia woman Amelia Scorler began packaging her mayo recipe that had been used in salads at her family's grocery store. When Amelia first packaged and sold the mayonnaise, she only had 12 glass jam jars full, and the typewritten labels she had made were held on with rubber bands. She sold out of those jars in less than an hour. Around the same time at his deli in New York City, German immigrant Richard Hellman was featuring salads made with his wife Margaret's homemade mayonnaise. 
Her mayonnaise became so popular with customers that the Hellmans began selling it in small wooden boats that were originally intended for butter. In 1912, Margaret Hellman's mayonnaise was mass marketed, and in 1926, it was trademarked as Hellman's Blue Ribbon Mayonnaise. Now, I don't know why so many people dislike mayonnaise because, well, like I said, I love it. But if I had to guess why people are turned off, it's probably got something to do with the variety of salads that I listed earlier, or perhaps the multiple salmonella outbreaks from the last hundred years that mayo has caused. A 1955 outbreak in Denmark had more than 10,000 people affected by the contaminated condiment. In 1987, made-from-scratch mayonnaise from a hospital kitchen in New York City contaminated with salmonella infected 404 patients and took nine lives. And in 2018, mayo from a local restaurant in Chile infected 174 people. Of course, there are eggless varieties of mayonnaise that can help you substantially decrease your likelihood of infection. I recommend Hellman's Vegan Dressing and Spread. Not a sponsored recommendation. Now, what's more Midwestern than mayonnaise? That's right. Say it with me. Ranch dressing. And I don't care if I just called it ranch dressing. It's a condiment. It goes on everything. This is the kind of stuff that actually belongs on pizza, on potatoes, on pasta, on lasagna, on chicken. You name it, and it's just a vessel for me to put ranch in my mouth in a socially acceptable way. Which is a sentiment I think a lot of people are going to agree with. Ranch is coming in last on our list because it's both the youngest of our condiments and it has the easiest to trace origins. It all starts with Steve Henson, a man from Thayer, Nebraska, who in 1949 moved to Anchorage, Alaska with his wife Gail. While living in Alaska, Steve worked as a plumbing contractor in the Alaskan bush, and looking to keep the food for his crew exciting, Steve came up with a new salad dressing, a blend of buttermilk, mayonnaise, herbs, and spices. Steve was a successful plumber and was able to retire at 35 years old, which then led he and Gail to move to Santa Barbara County, California, taking the dressing recipe with them. After a year and a half of retirement, Steve was bored and decided that he needed something new to occupy his time. He purchased the Sweetwater Ranch in San Marcos Pass in 1956 and renamed it Hidden Valley Ranch. The ranch would host guests, sort of like an inn or a bed and breakfast, and Steve was sure to include his salad dressing on the guest menu. Soon his ranch guests couldn't get enough of it, and Hidden Valley Ranch dressing was invented. By 1957, a packaged mix that could be mixed with mayonnaise to make the dressing at home began being sold in grocery stores and was available by mail order. At 75 cents apiece, soon every room in the Henson's home was dedicated to the ranch mailing operation. By the mid-60s, the ranch had been closed to guests, and the Henson's were thriving in their new business. By the early 1970s, Steve and Gail were still running the entirety of the Hidden Valley Ranch Company on their own from the ranch in California, but they were beginning to realize it was getting much too big for their home. Hidden Valley had a few different manufacturing locations in the early 1970s as they expanded from a local to a regional and finally a nationwide brand. In 1972, Clorox bought the Hidden Valley Ranch recipe and brand for $8 million, and the Hensons went back into retirement. Ranch stayed a relatively new and moderately loved dressing throughout the 1970s, but in the 1980s, it really found its place as an American cultural staple. This is because the 80s were a revolutionary time in the world of snack foods and foods in general. Things like ruffles, lunchables, fruit roll-ups, and bagel bites came to be popular at this time. But one of the longest lasting and most iconic from the decade is the Cool Ranch Dorito, or as other countries call it, Cool American. By 1992, ranch dressing had passed Italian for the most popular salad dressing in the United States, a ranking it's not moved from in the plus 30 years since. And these days, you can order a bedazzled ranch bottle, visit an entirely ranch-themed restaurant in St. Louis, 
find a ranch-flavored variety of almost every chip or crisp available, and Hidden Valley even has its own merch section on their website. And to think, it all started with Steve Henson and an Alaskan plumbing crew. Many people feel very strongly about their favorite condiments and about what they think is a vile condiment. <clears throat> Ketchup. No one is safe from the judgment of their peers when it comes to what they decide to put on a burger or hot dog. Hell, in May 2009, President Barack Obama was all over Fox News because he ordered a burger with Dijon and it was supposedly un-American of him. Let it be known that Fox News only supports yellow mustard, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. None of that brown, none of that Dijon, and none of that seeded shit. Get it out of here. All jokes aside, though, I think that that example and the mayonnaise controversy proves to us that not just people, but countries feel a very strong connection to their condiments. I'd like to go ahead and say, too, that I didn't talk about it in the mayonnaise section, but there is a whole faction of people online who think that mayonnaise could not have been invented in the 1700s without the intervention of time travelers, because there was no one around to teach these people how to emulsify oil and egg together, which... One, if you believe that, turn the podcast off, go outside, touch a tree. Go outside, take a breath of fresh air, hear the birds sing, feel the wind on your face, and remember that not everything we read on the internet is true. I think it's pretty simple to believe that if we were emulsifying mustard into oil with spices and things like that, we could have made the jump to emulsify egg into oil. I mean, we were already doing it with egg and cream. I am extremely interested to know, though, what you guys think is the best condiment. I'm very interested to see how this week's polls turn out. So go ahead and scroll down and vote in that after you finish up the episode. I do have a recommendation this week. Something that I always recommend to people at parties or at barbecues and things like that is to dip nacho cheese Doritos in yellow mustard. This is a Fox News approved statement. <laughs> I can't believe I said that. This is a Fox News approved statement. Put your nacho cheese Doritos in your yellow mustard. Americanize that Mexican chip. <laughs> My serious recommendation for this week, though, is actually not associated with the episode. So I did want to give you kind of a silly one. I want to go ahead and recommend something for real it has nothing to do with the episode from this week but it was so impactful I thought it was so good I wanted to go ahead and pass it off to y'all but it's going to be a book called this is how you lose the time war by Max Gladstone y'all one of the most beautiful imagery filled lyrically written books that I think I have ever read I full disclosure read this on a recommendation from Twitter um, I saw a tweet that said, don't look up anything about this book, just find a way to read it and read it. So I got an ebook from my local library and I finished it in just a couple days. It's only around 200 pages, so it's super quick. I think the audiobook is about four hours. Um, but wow, it was very good. Uh, 10 out of 10 recommend. Just, I don't want to say too much because kind of the intrigue is what made me read it, so I want you to go in with that same intrigue because you'll just be blown away. Don't forget to vote in the poll for what your favorite condiment is, and you can also send me a voice message via the link in the episode description. Just, you know, send me your thoughts on this episode or any others. 
suggestions for future topics or just tell me about what you had for lunch, what kind of condiment you put on your burger. The polls are only available through Spotify, but the link for voice messages is available everywhere. Also, Spotify is free, so if you want to make an account and come vote in the poll each week, come on over. We'd love to have you, and we'd love to have your statistical input. I think that's going to be where I wrap it up, guys. I think I've hit all of our housekeeping notes. Like I said, please send me a voice message. I am, like, so ready. I sent myself one, which is boring, because I listen to myself talk every week. I want to hear you guys say something. I can feature them in the episode, too, so go ahead and send me one, and maybe you'll get to listen to yourself which is kind of a mindfuck. Go ahead and let you know. But goodbye. I hope you'll join me next week in the pursuit to know a little bit about everything. Please like, share, physically share the podcast to a friend. Send it to a text. Send it to them via a text message. Put it on their phone. Play it in their AirPods and put their AirPods into their head. Do something. Make someone listen to it. We are are actively and aggressively forming a faction of know-it-alls. Let's bring everybody in. So like, share, comment, send me a cute picture of your dog, whatever. I want to hear from you. I love you all so much. Just please stay safe out there. Until next time, thanks.